0: You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, good evening. Uh, my name is Casey. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Free City. And if you're joining us uh, for the first time, we're on week three uh, in a series through Lamentations. And uh, Lamentations is about what the title is, it's about lamenting. It's about seeing, uh, it's about seeing something that's broken and uh, not fully understanding why. And as, as you process and as voice comes out, and this is literally, Lamentations is, is poetry. It's put to an acrostic, which is an alphabet poem, as it's in an orderly way trying to just give voice to what Jeremiah sees. The the destruction of his city, like what he sees all around him. And it's really, it's a process of how do we kind of say, man, how did we get here? And what do we do now? And it kind of brings this question, like, especially this verses, these verses, like, how can this, like, come from from that? Like, how can we get here from that? How could this come from that? And there's been a couple times in my life, you know, that when I was thinking about this, when I was just, like, surprised. Uh, one time, I was, a, I was a senior in college. Okay, I was a super senior in college. I was on my victory lap. And, uh, and I, was in a, I, was in, I was taking judo. Maybe that's why I was... On a victory lap, I was in the judo class. Uh, I had to take a PE class or something. And so one of my best friends, we took judo together. And it was a lot of fun. I, I, I used to wrestle. I did some freestyle wrestling. And so it's a lot of, kind of similar throws. And our um, our instructor, I sensei, I don't know what he was. Our instructor, uh, he would always give me a really hard time. Because, you know, in wrestling, you take a very defensive position. In judo, you're not supposed to. Like, um, and so he'd always give me a really hard time. And they had a team come in that was trying out for uh, the Olympic team. They were invited to try out. And uh, there was one guy who was real hopeful, and he was Brazilian, and he, his name was Allison. And so he was literally like, I mean, he was a tiny guy, like not a very big guy at all. But he was a, like a gold medalist, uh, potentially, I mean. And so he paired him up with me, and he looked at me, and he said, good luck. And I remember I was like, man, what is gonna happen? And so I poked Allison in the chest and I said, You can't hurt me. And, uh, and so then the whistle went and we kind of started. And he kind of shot in a couple times and I kind of deflected it. I thought, Man, this is going good. And then suddenly, this, this man in front of me, he kind of gave me a smile. And I thought, Why is he doing that? And all of a sudden he shot in and I tried to post his head and he like a transformer wrapped up around my arm and barred my arm with his legs while I was still standing. Like I was like almost like screaming, trying to tap out. And he was like on me and I couldn't get him off me. <laughs> and it was a moment of like, how did, how did that, how did this come, come from that? Like I didn't see that coming. You yeah, know, it was probably four years ago. Um, it was Christmas Eve, and uh, we had gotten the kids to bed, and we had a fire going, and uh, I was—I had made um, a kitchen uh, thing for uh, my, my for my kids, and I was setting it up, and we were getting it all out, and uh, we were just like—it it was like you know—it was like Christmas vacation, like we were living it, like this is good, 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 you know, and and uh, all of a sudden, like Kinsey has this like spidey mommy sense go off. Like she just stood up and she went upstairs. Not like she didn't run. It wasn't like alarm. It was like urgent though. She just like stood up and she went upstairs. And all of a sudden what happened was our oldest daughter was coming down from the top bunk. And she got about halfway down the top bunk and, because she was getting sick. And she threw up Everywhere. I mean everywhere, and so her sister had been sick like two days before, and we thought we were in the clear, but like there was like anti-Christmas joy everywhere, and so I come up, and I, I, I step into this horrifying moment. Where, you know, Kinsey is sweeping Quinn away in in the bathtub, and like it is on the curtains, it is among the stuffed animals, it is on her sleeping sister who's still asleep. And I mean, it's just like, I don't know what to do, and so I just run downstairs, I grab trash bags, and everything that's soft that has been soiled and is now a contagion is getting shoved into like wash trash bags or burn giveaway trash bags. And we're just gathering it up, and it's just cleaning up. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, I don't know how to clean this up. So I get our shop vac. And I just start shop vacing the carpet and her little sister, who is still asleep with the shop vac right next to her. She had a rough couple of days. And so all this is happening. Kinsey comes in to marvel the destruction that is before us. And all of a sudden, her mommy spidey sense goes off again. And she went into Cruz's room just in time to see him sit up and start to throw up also. And so she yells for help. And there was no one else to go. I was the only one available. I didn't want to go. (laughs) And I go in, and he's trying to get out of bed. Like, we need to keep it contained. And so, like, I post my hand on his forehead just to keep him there as he's finishing. And then, like, we have one kid in the bathtub She's running water in another, and there's you know anti Christmas joy everywhere, and I'm still holding. But Cruz is like, I just feel better, and he tries to go back to sleep right there. (laughs) He just kind of lays over, starts pulling up the puke blanket on him. I'm like, no, no, and so we convince him that he has to wake up, and then we're doing the same thing, and we're cleaning. I'm shop vacuuming in there. Kenzie comes in, and I just say these words. I say, man, this is intense. And like I, if you would have asked me, like what that I would have said, like I see my cute kids. I'm like I, I couldn't imagine this coming from that. Like I just couldn't have imagined. And so the rest of the night, man, we had two kids on the left, you know, on the couch and the love seat, and they had bowls, and it was like helping them up and all night. And I don't know if Santa Claus came or not, but he didn't help if he came. <laughs> but a moment where you look at what's around you and you just say. I didn't see this coming. This, when we look right here, we have Jeremiah sitting in the, probably the darkest moment of lamentations. And he's saying, I just didn't, even though he was the prophet. It begs this question. I mean, it begs this question where we're asking this question, how can this happen? Where did this come from? In Lamentations 2, we are given the answer. It says, how did this happen? God did it. It says, God did it. And he leaves us with this hard question, how can I trust the loving hands of God when the loving hands of God actually hurt Or we got to be honest. We read it when they actually destroy. When judgment comes, like when the destruction is all around, and I'm begging the point: Did God allow it, or did God do it? And like when I see the loving hands of God, and I wonder, I didn't see this. You know, last week Jeremiah looked um, at suffering from the inside looking out and he painfully described how suffering feels. And then there was that leveling and that's what Ethan led with where we get this saying where it says, you know, where he levels, he says, The Lord is right. Like looking at all that's around and looking at how we got there. It's just this moment of confession. It's this moment of just leveling to the truth and saying, what God did is right. And right here in Lamentations 2, there is a subject change. You see, Lamentations 1, like the subject is the sufferer. We go from the sufferer looking at the sufferer from outside looking in. And then we go from the sufferer on the inside looking out. But in Lamentations 2, the subject is not the sufferer. It is God himself. God is the main subject. And in verses 1 through 9, he has 26 action verbs attributed to him. 26 action verbs in 9 verses. That is, I mean, that is 2 remainder 8 per verse. I mean, that's long addition. I did it, 2.8. And so, I mean, 26 in 9 verses, God did it. And so, if you just look at it really, really, you know, really quickly, look at it. In verses one through three, God cast down. He did not remember. He swallowed up. He broke down. He brought down. He cut down. He withdrew and he has burned. Or look at verses four through five. It says, God has bent his bow, killed, poured out his fury. The Lord has become like an enemy. Or, or it keeps going. And it says, and as an enemy, he has swallowed up. It says that twice, laid to ruins, multiplied mourning and lamenting like an enemy. He has laid waste. And then, in all its suffering from the Lord, it says that Zion forgets its festivals. It's a moment like we don't remember what that was like, but it keeps going. Like in verse 7, the Lord, the God of hosts, has scorned, disowned, delivered his people into the hands of their enemies. Like I didn't list all 26 of them if you were counting on your fingers and toes, but I listed a lot of them. And all of these are God doing something in response to what he found in his people. God acting accordingly based on what it says in verse 8. Like look at it. It says, The Lord determined, look at verse 8, The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused ramparts and wall to lament. They languished together. God looked and he measured and the righteous action was to bring judgment. And that's what we find. I didn't see that coming. And so it just, like what happens? Like Lamentation 2, it it laments that God looked at Jerusalem, his people, he measured for their righteousness, and then he had to be honest and determine them to be an enemy of goodness, and then he treated them accordingly. And it brings all kinds of questions like, what if God is the source of our suffering? What can we do when God sees us as an enemy? What can we do if he pulls out the measuring tape for our lives and he doesn't find enough righteousness in us? What hope is there for sinful? people before a righteous and good god like ultimately like if you read the scriptures like this is actually kind of the fear of all of the scriptures brought center stage into lamentations too if god shows up do i actually have hope where is god when it doesn't work out the way i thought it would What if I had a moment to give my plight before God? Would he even hear it or would I deserve an answer? It's brought center stage right here where it says, if God steps in to measure my righteousness, is there any hope at all? In Lamentations 2, we see that God is angry. He's angry and he acts upon his anger and he's not angry in like a, Spur of the moment kind of way, but he's angry at actually really some specific things. It Lynch, it mentions this. He's angry at the strength of his people that had turned immoral. He's angry at the spirituality that became unfaithful. And he's angry at leaders who, who were corrupt. And so like, we don't see necessarily why he's angry in this. But if we step back and we look at the broader message that we find in Jeremiah, Jeremiah over and over has the same message for those areas, the strength of God's people that had failed, the leaders who had been unfaithful and the spiritual worship that was what he would call a like that message is so loud here we just see the actions you know so if we're like if we were looking at this more broadly you know we could look at jeremiah 2 Chap, or chapter 2, verse 20, where it says this, and it talks about the spiritual leadership and their unfaithfulness. It says, for long ago, and this is, it says, for long ago, I, I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree, you bow down like a whore. You see, Jeremiah does something in the scriptures where he says, idolatry, and he relates it to idolatry. And we get these really stark words where it talks about like the promiscuity and cheating on God. And it says things like prostitution and all these different words to describe it. And it actually builds something that's very uncomfortable for us because we want to think of sin as like just messing up. But the Bible, and especially Jeremiah, paints a picture of it's more like being found in the wrong bed. It's betrayal. And so there's all these messages like that to the religious leaders of Jerusalem and of Israel that says, yeah, 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 you find yourself in the places of worship, but then under every tree, under every tree, under every every high hill, you go everywhere else and you break covenant with me. Or we see that he speaks harshly to national leaders who were corrupt it says you know like we could see the corruption of worship in Israel it led to a corruption of leadership and Jeremiah is constantly calling out the king and the priest and the other prophets the other prophets who stood around and said no no this siege is going to go away we're going to win it's going to work out for us and he's like man they didn't get that vision from the Lord they are lying and we'll look, like if you want to kind of thumb through, we're going to kind of end um, in Jeremiah 7. And we're going to see all of these things come together in what's called the, the, the sermon, um, the, the temple sermon. But we also see where there's this condemnation of, of the leaders that they didn't act out for the good of the people. They let all these things just go unchecked. They let like, injustice happen unchecked. They didn't take care of the vulnerable people. They were being crushed. They were being taken advantage of. And the language for the vulnerable people is almost always the same. The widows, the foreigners, the orphans, the poor. They, they were indifferent. Which then brings a the third category where it wasn't that their strength when it wasn't right was just made impotent. Their strength when it wasn't right was made immoral and cruel. And we see so much come out in that. But, but first, like th- let's just look at this. Let's look at these two things that it says God is angry and what is he angry at for Jerusalem. And so look at verse 1. And so this is what we're going to see. We're going to see that God is angry. And he's angry at three things. He's angry at their strength that became evil. He's angry at the religion that turned sour. And he's angry um, at, at their leaders. That were unruly. So look at it. it. Says, look at these angry words. It says, "How the Lord in His anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He cast down from heavens to earth. The splendor of Israel is not remembered. His footstool in the day of His anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy, without mercy all the inhabitants of Jacob. In His wrath, He has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah." He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdoms and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand set like a foe. He has killed all who were delightful in our eyes. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. He has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. Like what we see is God is angry because Jerusalem's strength, like the strength of Jerusalem, was being used to hurt and not protect. Like, let me just make the case. Let's just make some observations. Like, like what do we see in, in verses 1 through 5? We see a lot of angry words. Like, like look at it. Like verse 1, how the Lord in his anger. Verse 1 goes on. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. Verse 2, in his wrath he has broken down. Verse 3, he has cut down fierce anger. Verse 4, it says he has poured out his fury like fire. Almost every verse, his anger is mentioned. God is angry at what he sees. And then what what is he angry at? In these first five verses, we see, look at verse one. See the object of where he's angry. He's angry at the splendor of Israel. And so he cast it into darkness. When it says splendor, it means like, like the highest points. It means like the best we have to offer. It means strength and beauty. Or it goes on in verse 2. What is he angry at? The strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He broke down the strongholds. He's angry at strength. That's not applying its strength the right way. It goes on in verse 2. It says he's angry at the kingdom and its rulers. Do you see that? And so he brings them down to the ground. Or verse 4 it says he's angry at all who were delightful. It goes on to say they were killed. Verse 5 it says and its palaces and its strongholds have been swallowed up. Verses 1-5 through painstakingly say God looked at the strength of his people and he didn't see them doing what they were supposed to do. And you take the message of Jeremiah that we have, he sees them not protecting, he sees them exploiting and it angered him. But that's not all he's angry at. See, God's anger burned against Jerusalem, unfaithful strengths. It also burned against their unfaithful worship. Look at verse 6. It says, and look at these words, it says, He laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festivals and Sabbath. And in his fierce indignation, he has spurned king and priests. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He is delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palace and raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as the day of her festival. And so we see a second landing place of anger like God is angry because of Jerusalem's unfaithful religion. Like, do you see all the religious words? Look, look at verse 6. It says, the way it uses the words his booth and his meeting place. Like, that should draw a familiar language to, like, God's people journeying through the wilderness and the tent of meetings in the tabernacle. It's the same language. Or it goes on. Like it goes on in verse 6, it says their festivals and their Sabbath, those are religious language. Or it goes on, like he says he wants to completely forget them. You know, it goes on, look at verse 6, it says, What does he have for the king and the priest? Fierce indignation. Or verse 7, the altar and the sanctuary, he disowns them. Or later in verse 7, the house of the Lord he delivers delivers it into the hands of the enemy. Like he looked at the religious structures and he said, man, they were polluted. They didn't see their duty as something that was precious, worthy of revering, or something that had authority on their lives. They started to see it as optional. You see, like, if you looked at what was actually going on, it's not that they stopped going to the tabernacle. It's not that they just disregarded all the festivals. It's that they said, yeah, yeah, we'll do that, but if it doesn't suit us, we'll just do something else. Yeah, yeah, we'll come and we'll worship Yahweh and we'll say you and you alone. But then if you lead in a way that we don't really get or we don't really want or we don't think it's culturally accepted, then we'll just go to another God. We'll try out the Canaanite gods. And so what you literally had was you had right there the temple of the Lord, but right outside of it, you would have worship to mullet. You see, it wasn't that they just said, no, man, nothing to do with that. They said, man, I don't know if it actually has authority on my life. Like, I, I, like wow. Like it's saying, like, wow, God, I don't know if I can really trust you with, with my sex life. There must be some sort of cultural option going on. Or, God, I don't know if what you demand about reconciliation and what you demand about forgiveness, I don't know if that actually suits me. Like, maybe I'd just rather see those people damned because they hurt me. Or, or maybe it's like, I, mean, I know what you command in generosity toward the poor and the vulnerable, but shouldn't they just make better decisions? Like, all of a sudden, those things weren't authoritative anymore, and the prophet had a lot to say about it. If you read Jeremiah, that he says, this is corruption. See, he's angry at unfaithfulness of the religious systems in Jerusalem. He's angry at the crushing indifference of the strongholds and the palaces of Jerusalem. He looks at Jerusalem and he's angry at what the people have become and what they have allowed. He's angry at what they're just fine with. And so God looked at the religious leaders and the institutions and he was angry at what he found. See, the first thing that his anger falls on is immoral strength. Strength is supposed to protect but it exploits the second thing is unfaithful religion, and then the final thing is a corruption in like civic leadership. Like, look at verse 8: The Lord determined to lay to ruin the walls of the daughter of Zion, He stretched out the measuring line, He did not restrain His hand from destroying. He caused ramparts and a wall to lament, they languished together. Her gates have sunken to the ground, He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more. Her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughters of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. This says God is angry at Jerusalem's corrupt leadership. Do you see what was mentioned, verse 9? Her king and her princess were dispersed as slaves among the nation because God was angry. The law, like it's no more. And it's not no more meaning that it's not written somewhere. Or it's not no more that people don't recite it. It's no more in the sense that it's followed or has authority in their lives. Or then it goes to the prophets. He says they're liars. They're saying things like, don't worry, y'all. Man, Babylon, we're going to win. We're going to be fine. I had a vision from the Lord. And God says, they did not have a vision from me. And then he says, the elders, those are supposed to be people with wisdom who've seen a lot of life, who should be sagey, who should have answers for when difficult comes. It says they have nothing to say. They are languishing in the dirt. Why was God so angry at the civic and spiritual leadership? Why did he destroy the places of power in Jerusalem? And we mentioned Jeremiah 7. Jeremiah 7, it's called the the temple sermon. It's a place where God denounces all three of these areas really clearly. And and the scene is this. God's people are coming to church on Sunday. I mean, they're they're coming into church. Actually, it be Saturday. They're coming to church And they're coming in to raise their arms. They're coming in to say, we worship you alone. They're coming to celebrate the covenant that God had made with them. And in that covenant, it was like, I will be your God. It will go well with you. I will bring you to the promised land. It goes all the way back to God bringing them out of slavery and saying, if you will worship and follow me alone. And so they're coming really in essence to say, that is what we're doing. That is us. That is our side of the covenant. And right outside the temple walls, everything else is going on. Right outside the temple walls, under what we've already read in Jeremiah 2, on every high hill, under every tree, is like what he would describe as prostitution of idolatry. That's more like idolatry, where we turn from God. Right outside the temple walls, there's even child sacrifice going on. Because they just adopted that idea from the Canaanite gods. And this is what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 7. Verses 1, it says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways. And your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And so ultimately what he's saying, like, don't trust that God won't do something against the temple of the Lord. Don't say, man, God would never step in and destroy this because it's so precious to him. He's saying, don't just trust. He says, amend your ways. Verse 5. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute just one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in the place, if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, if you trust in deceptive words to no avail, Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, or go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered only to go on doing all of these abominations. You see, it wasn't that they just said, man, we don't have any room for, 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 for religion. We don't have any room to worship after God. It's just that they made God one of many things. It was like, yeah, I'll do this if it fits me. But then I'll just go outside the walls and do something different. And then jump down to verse 20. He goes on and says, Therefore says the Lord, Behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place upon man and beast, upon trees of the field and the fruit of the ground. It will be... It will be burned and not be quenched. Jump down to verse 32. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Where it will be no more be called uh, Toph- Topheth, the valley of the sons of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury in Topheth, because there is no room elsewhere. And the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And none will frighten them away. The end of verse 7 foretold Lamentations 2 of where they found themselves, where it's like, how did we get here? Lamentations 2, 8. It tells us the Lord looked at Israel. He stretched out a measuring line and he measured what was there. What, What do you think the measuring would say about us. What if God measured your life? (laughs) What if God measured my life? Like, do you think the measurement of righteousness was only for the nation of Israel? Do you think it won't be used, like, on us? Do you think, like, the failure of the church to preach Christ crucified to all aspects of humanity is, like, just all shucks? Like, do you think the failure to protect the vulnerable was only a concern in the Old Testament or only a concern for Jerusalem? Like, do we think, like, our failures will never be measured? Lamentations, is just for lamentations. Do you think the measuring tape of God has changed? That it doesn't register the genocide of the unborn, and it doesn't register racial injustice, and it doesn't register indifference to the poor? Like, like what will God find if he measures us? Like everything that Jeremiah preached in Jeremiah 7, everything that he preached that was the temple sermon came true in Lamentations 2. The anger of God devastated everything. And that the description of what happened we could read about in Jeremiah 25. And that the picture of the description comes to really one picture and it's called the cup. See, the the cup that's described in Jeremiah 25, it's a cup that's full of the wrath of God. And it's a very important theme in the Bible that it says our sinfulness is storing up for us a wrath contained in a cup. And one day, like, that cup of wrath must be consumed. Jeremiah 25, 15, this is what it says. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Jeremiah, he was standing, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of my wrath. See, God handed Jerusalem a cup of their iniquity and their indifference and of their sin, of where like, leadership had failed, where the church had failed, where individuals had failed, what they had chosen to live with, what they said was okay, what they didn't want to do anything. God had it in a cup, and he said, Jeremiah, take this cup. God handed them their cup, and we read about lamentations. What would be in your cup? What would be in our cup? Like these, these are these are questions we should ask. Like if this is the word of God, if this is how God has answered humanity, if this is what God has done in the past, like I get it. Like there are Psalms I love to read because God also blesses and God also forgives. But like this is here, we have to do something with this. What if God hands us our cup? What is in that cup? Like as a church, what is in that cup? As a life and a pastor, what is in my cup? What will be handed to me? Will I have to take it? And the answer is yes, unless someone else takes it for you. The message of the gospel, the imagery of the cup of God's wrath, that has to be drunk. It's so vivid in the Old Testament. And then we get to the night before Jesus was crucified. As he is praying, like, there's got to be another way. He uses these words in Matthew 26, 39. It says, and Jesus going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. See, the gospel is this. Jesus took the cup of the wrath of God for you. If you look to him, if you trust him, if you treasure him, if you make him Lord of your life, it says he takes your cup. Like, you might ask, what does that mean? It means this. If you say, Jesus, you get to decide on things in my life. Jesus, you get to decide what I think uh, about what is right and wrong. You get to decide things about, about injustice, race, character, sexuality. Like, you get to decide what is good and what is right. You get to say what is bad. Like, it's not optional when I just go to church to say, yeah, that's, you know, that's an idea. But I think maybe culturally that's not right. So I'm going to go over here now. Like, you get to decide, and you will follow very imperfectly. You will not be a great follower. But to become a Christian is looking at Jesus and Man, I see what you did. You get to decide. And what that is, is it's a change of leadership. And in that moment, Jesus drinks your cup. Upon the cross, the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. And every week, when we come to communion, we look at another cup. See, every week when we, when we come to communion, we see another cup, and Jesus redefines it. He says, this is the cup of the covenant. And we're reminded of his words, that it points to what Jesus had to consume to take that cup. The bread, it reminds us that his body was broken for us. Yeah, the wine, it reminds us that his blood was spilled. You see, the body of Jesus was broken For you in your place. Now, listen, we have to celebrate that. We have to relish that. We have to celebrate the fact that the measuring tape of God, we would never have passed it. We all would have failed it. As a people, as individuals, as a church, we never would have passed it. So Jesus stood with his life before us and it was measured in our place. And we have to celebrate that. But it doesn't mean that we don't let the lordship of God and what he says about like good church, faithfulness, what he says about seeking justice, what he says about generosity, what he says about, it doesn't mean that we just say, oh man, I'm forgiven, great. See, the lordship of God steps in and it wants to order not just our lives, but it wants to order our community. It wants to order us as a people. It wants to order us as a nation. In the New Testament, the instruction is talking about communion. And it says, Hey, if you're there and you're worshiping the Lord and you're about to bring your gifts to the altar and you realize that, man, you have sinned against someone or you need for the forgiveness, it says, Leave your gifts there and first be reconciled to them. Fully forgiven. Stop. Be reconciled. What does the measuring tape of God's righteousness say in your life right now? Have you looked to Jesus and said, would you drink my cup? In communion, we celebrate both the broken body of Jesus that was broken for you and the blood of Jesus poured out for your life. And so if you're a believer, I invite you to take communion with us And usually we we come forward and it's more of a communal moment and I miss it. But looking down, like it's a moment of reflection. Like it's a moment for us to say, like in the cup, I now have the forgiving blood of Jesus. What was in my cup was the wrath of God that he took for me. So, believer, take. The body of Jesus, it's a symbol pointing to what made you right before God. Believer, as a gift, receive what made you right before God, the blood of Jesus that was spilled for you. And look at Lamentations. Is God God when what he does hurt and is he God is he right when he does it because listen believer the darkness of Lamentations 2 when we get to the middle of Lamentations 3 cast a beautiful beautiful light let me pray Uh, Father Lord um, I pray we just be honest like, Lord, where you've given us stewardship and where we are with our neighbors or in leadership. Um, Lord, I pray we you be honest. Like, what would the measuring tape of God say? And Lord, the measuring tape of God's righteousness would always leave us wanting. But we have the blood of Jesus that ushers us, makes us sons and daughters of the King on high, who always answers, who says he will always be there. He will never leave and he will never forsake. But Lord, I pray that you would make us kingdom-minded people, that we would desire your kingdom come, your will be done, that there would be something reflective in our lives as individuals and our lives corporately as believers, that they would see the kingdom of God, that Lord, your justice would flow down. Lord, that we would take the place. Of the vulnerable, that we would love to extend the mercy and the grace of God to those who others have written off. We would love to exercise the faith of God in generosity, believing what you say that we actually can't outgive you. We would love, Lord, that we would take on a fragrance of life for those who love you. And yes, it will also be death for those who hate you. Make us your people. And where things are wrong, give us courage to say it's wrong. And where things are beautiful, let us celebrate those things. Father, we love you and we need you. In Jesus' name, amen.